Well, keep your Bibles open to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 is our text here this morning, and we're going to have a little different format. We're going to be singing at the end, so those of you who love to sing, don't worry. It's going to continue to happen here this morning. Acts chapter 2. And I'm going to confess this morning that I am going to preach someone else's sermon. So this is not something that I typically do. I usually study a lot and prepare my own sermon and preach an original sermon. But I'm going to preach a sermon from a guy who preached 2,000 years ago. He preached over 3,000 people. and Actually, 3,000 people came to Christ and were baptized. It was probably the best sermon ever preached besides the ones that Jesus preached. And if you haven't figured it out yet, it's Peter's sermon from Acts chapter 2. Historically, Acts chapter 2 is exactly 50 days after Jesus died on the cross, after Jesus' death, after Passover. And this is the day of Pentecost. And the day of Pentecost is a, was a celebration, a Jewish celebration, but also they had a Jewish tradition that this was also the day that Moses gave the law and preached it to Israel at the Exodus. If you remember, Israel was enslaved in Egypt and God freed his people and they went out to worship on, they said, the mountain. What mountain was that? It was Mount Sinai. And then when they were there, God had his people gathered and God met with his people. The book of Exodus says this, now... Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. The whole mountain trembled greatly as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder and the Lord came down on Mount Sinai. Picture that. All of Israel, a million, maybe two million Jewish people below this mountain and God himself descended and he represented that with these signs. And here in Exodus, in this text up here in Exodus chapter 19, verse 20, God gives his personal name and that is Lord. You can't see it up here because I have all these in all caps, but in English, if you look in your English Bible, that word Lord is in all caps L, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, which helps us to know that that's the Hebrew name for God, Yahweh. Remember when Moses was before the burning bush, he says, what do I tell the people your name is? Who, who do I say is, is speaking to me? And he says, tell them it's Yahweh. Tell them it's, it's the covenant-keeping God. I am who I am. So the Lord wanted his people, Israel, at this time to know that he was meeting with them and he was starting something new. What was the new thing he was starting in Exodus chapter 19? It was Israel and he had new revelation for them. What was the new revelation God had for them? It was his laws. And so the law was given through Moses, but John said what? Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So 1,400 years after the giving of the law, Jesus promised his disciples he was going to start something new. And he was going to give new revelation. And what was the new thing Jesus was going to start? The church. What was the new revelation that he had? Well, his teachings that the apostles took and they retaught them and they wrote them down. And we have now what we call the New Testament and Jesus had a new covenant for us, for his church. 
So if you look down in Acts chapter 2, verse chapter 2, verse 1, you can see this is the fulfillment of the promise that Jesus had, that he was going to start something new. And he says, and the Bible says in Acts 2, 1, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. So that was 120 disciples in this upper room. They were praying, waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit to come upon them. Just like happened at the Mount, Mount Sinai, they were waiting for God's presence to descend upon them. And I'm not going to go through this whole text here because Carl just read it and um, I don't have time to teach through it. But if you remember from what Carl just read, we know that there was a loud sound. It filled the room. What looked like smoke and fire came down. Smoke filled the room and what looked like fire came down upon them. And these were signs. It wasn't literal fire. It wasn't literal smoke. It was, there were signs, though, that God was doing something. His presence was there. He was starting something new. It was, there was a new era. It was the era of the church. And something amazing happened. These disciples were able to walk around the city of Jerusalem, and they were able to preach in languages that they did not know. In languages, there was at least 14 different languages represented there in Jerusalem. And here you had these Galileans, these, some of them who were former fishermen, and they were able to speak and preach the gospel in other languages. That's what's happening here in, in Acts chapter 2. So you, if you watch on TV and you see these you know, churches where people are falling down and they're shaking and you know, gibberish, that's not that's what's happening here. They're actually preaching the gospel in another language. And so God did this amazing thing. This is a, a sign that God was doing something. And then pre Peter got up to preach to explain what was happening. Some people thought, well, maybe some people are drunk. Maybe that's what's happening. These guys are drunk. Well, it was only 9 o'clock in the morning. And Peter goes, hey, who drinks at 9 o'clock in the morning? Like, that's when you have coffee, right? That's not when you drink. He said, they're not drunk with wine. Actually, God is doing something. This is a sign. And that's his sermon, therefore, he preaches in Acts chapter Two, verses 14 through 36. And here's the main point of Peter's sermon. What's the main point that Peter wanted to get across? Well, it's this. is that Jesus Christ is the Lord, capital L, capital R-O, capital R, capital D, that he is the Lord. Jesus Christ is the Lord. And because Jesus is the Lord, you can be forgiven. I think that's the heart of his sermon. In fact, let me just kind of skip through some verses and show that to you. Look in verse 14. I said I wasn't going to go through this, and I'm not, so I'll just skip through this. Verse 14, but Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice, and he addressed them and spoke to them and preached. And his text, his first text was a prophet Joel, and he wanted to demonstrate what was happening and that it was signifying a new era. So look in verse 16. He says, and this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days, it shall be declares, God declares. And then he goes on and begins to quote Joel chapter 2. Here's another interesting thing. What's the name that, that God uses for himself in Joel chapter 2? Over and over and over, he says, the Lord our God, Yahweh, our God. And again, in your English Bible, if you look it up, it's capital O, cap, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. It's kind of hard to say, isn't it? 
get the whole point, right? The idea is that this is the Lord himself. So Peter, therefore, is declaring that the Lord is Jesus Christ. And it is he himself who is pouring out the spirit upon his church. In fact, look down in verse 33. You can see in the middle of verse 33, the Bible says that it's Jesus Christ who's doing this. Verse 33, he says in his sermon, he, that's Jesus, has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So what's happening in Jerusalem? It's Jesus Christ in heaven, exalted at the right hand of the Father, pouring out his spirit upon his church. And he's saying, He's saying, we are now in these last days and soon the last day, the day of the Lord, the day of Yahweh will soon come. I grew up in Indiana and in Indiana basketball is a pretty big deal. And this time of year is like the Super Bowl for other people that are like football and or baseball. It's, this, is like the, this is like the World Series, you know, time. We all love basketball in Indiana. And so we all would fill out brackets. How many people fill out a bracket? Anyone in here? If this is Indiana, everybody's hand would go up. Our family, there's seven brackets sitting over there on the table. and We're all keeping track of who's ahead and who's behind. And usually what happens is the youngest ones win. And that, how that works, whatever. The NCAA tournament, it takes place usually in the middle of March, and it goes for a couple weeks, so it started last weekend. And then there's this last day, the championship game we all look forward to, and we celebrate it, and then it's over. You could say it this, like this. Right now, we are in the, the, the days of March Madness, and we're looking forward to that last day, to that, to that championship game. And we, as a church, we are in the last days. And we are looking forward to that last day when the day of the Lord, when our champion Jesus Christ comes back and he makes all things new. And so Peter announced here, we are in these last days, started here on this day of Pentecost. We've been experiencing the last days as, on this earth for the last 2,000 years here as a church. And we're looking forward to this last day. And so again, verses 14 through 21, Peter is declaring this. In fact, if you look at verse, let me just show you this real quick. Look down in chapter 2. And look at verses 19 through 20. These, this is talking about the last day. This is something that has not happened yet. And then notice in verse, the end of verse 21, he says, Before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, and then he says in verse 21, here's the conclusion from Joel 2, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And Peter preached this crowd. He says, what's your response to the fact that Jesus is the Lord? That we're in the last days. His day is coming when he's going to come back. What's your response? What should it be? Call upon him to save you from your sins. In other words, because Jesus is Lord, he can forgive you. So you should call upon him. Which then leads to the question, which every one of those individuals around listening would have asked, well, how do we know Jesus is the Lord? Like Jesus, how do we know Jesus is that Yahweh of the Old Testament? How do we know he is the, the Lord God himself? And so what he does here is Peter goes through and he gives proofs for the lordship of Jesus Christ. From verses 22 through 36, he, he presents proofs that Jesus Christ truly is the 
Lord. In fact, look at verse 22. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you, proven to be true by God. And then go to the end of his sermon. Look at verse 36. The last verse gives really his proposition. He, he concludes with this. Verse 36. This is his last line of his sermon. He says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God, that's God the Father, has made him, that's Jesus Christ, both Lord and Christ. Really probably a better way to say it, he's demonstrated that he's both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom, and then he points to them, I can see this, whom you crucified. And so Peter here, he invites them, everyone listening to him, to call upon this Jesus to save them. And so we're going to talk about this morning the fact of the proofs that Jesus is the Lord. Now you look at this up there and you're probably a little scared, aren't you? But we're only going to go through two proofs this morning, and the next three are going to be on Resurrection Sunday next Sunday. So let's start with a word of prayer, asking God to bless this part of our sermon. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you will bless, you'll bless the words that I'm about to speak. And I pray for each heart in here, God, may their hearts be open to what you want them to hear, and may they be broken before you, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. A story was told of a young boy who went to his grandma's house, and he loved to go to his grandma's house. She lived in the country on the farm. Maybe she lived in L.A. and just wanted to get, you know, he wanted to get, or he lived in L.A., so he just wanted to get out to his grandma's house. But he lived in the farm, and as boys do, or she lived in the farm, as boys do, they wanted to go out and run around and run around the field and mess with the chickens and all that. So he got a slingshot out, and right when he came to grandma's house, went out there and started playing with it. Of course, if you're a boy with a slingshot, what do you do? You shoot everything that moves, right? And so he's shooting cans, and he's shooting this and that, and he'd shoot the back of the, the bull and things like that. Then he saw a duck come around the corner, and he shot the duck. Kind of instinctively foolish of the boy to do that, right? Don't do that in a California. I think you go to jail for that. Anyways, shot the duck, hit it in the head, and the duck died. And he turns around, and there's the neighbor girl. And she says, oh, I saw that. I'm going to tell your grandma and this boy, he knew he was in big trouble. He killed the duck. And so he said, no, no, please don't do that. She said, okay, if you come over every day this week and you do my chores for the, on the farm, then I won't tell your grandma. <laughs> so what do you think the boy did? Every morning he got up for two hours, did her chores. By the end of the week, he was getting sick of doing this. One day he was sitting at the breakfast table with his grandma and he said, grandma, I got to tell you something. I killed the neighbor's duck, and she smiled real big, and she says, you know what? I already knew that. I actually saw you do that. He said, you did? And she said, you know what? Actually, that's not the neighbor's duck. That was my duck. And he said, what, Grandma? I didn't know that. He said, Grandma, Grandma, I am so sorry. I'm so sorry. I killed your duck. And she said, you know, I forgive you. And you know what? I can forgive you. Because I own the duck. And I wondered how long you were going to allow that neighbor girl to treat you as her slave. <laughs> and she said, I forgive you. The reason the grandma could forgive that boy and that boy could be set free is because she owned the duck. We are like that boy who allows Satan to enslave us with our own sin, 
Satan uses our sin against us. He keeps us in bondage. But Jesus Christ is the Lord. He longs to save. He longs to free. And he actually doesn't just long to do it. He has authority to do it because he's the Lord. He owns the duck, you could say. He has authority over death. He has authority over life. Jesus has the power to save and to forgive. And so here Peter presents the authority of Jesus Christ as the Lord to be able to save you and forgive you. And proof number one is Jesus proved to be the Lord over all, over all creation by his supernatural works, his supernatural works. Look in verse 21. We're going to start there. Verse 21, and he's, and it shall come to pass that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So who is this Lord? Verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Again, verse 22 says, uses the word attested, which means to demonstrate something is true. Literally, God the Father, he demonstrated that it's true. This is true, that Jesus Christ is the Lord through his miracles. It was attested to by God, by God. Notice Peter uses the human name for Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. That was his human identity. Jesus was the name his mother gave him. Of course, the angel was the one who told him to give him that name. Nazareth was the town that he grew up in. Jesus of Nazareth actually was the last words, were the last words that someone would have seen because on the cross that was put above him, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. So there was no debate. There was no debate from those who were listening to this sermon that Jesus Christ truly was human. Sometimes secular historians try to argue that Jesus was not a historical figure, or at least not the one that they think that the Bible teaches. Some religions say that Jesus wasn't even truly human. They say that he was a manifestation. He was some kind of spirit. But the followers of Jesus and the abusers of Jesus actually all agreed on this point. Jesus truly was a real historical figure. He had the nature of humanity. In fact, his mother that gave birth to him was standing right there during this sermon. So there was no debating that. Jesus truly was human. But Peter did not need to prove that. It was obvious to everyone around. But Peter did want to demonstrate this to them, that Jesus Christ had another nature. It was the nature of divinity. And it wasn't that Peter was teaching that Jesus is a God of many gods. He was teaching that Jesus is one and the same as the true God. The Bible teaches that there is one God and there is one God who eternally exists and he exists in three persons. One God who eternally exists in three persons. And he exists in the persons of God the Son, God the Father, I should say, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So one God, one essence, three persons. And therefore, Peter here is demonstrating this great paradox. Even just by saying these, these, these few words at the beginning and then going on, he's, he's demonstrating there's a great paradox. That this is, a, this is a human, this was a human, this is a human, Jesus Christ is human, Yet he is and remains God. And as God, he exists. Now think about this. Wrap your mind around this. He is God, which means he exists outside of time and space and matter. 
yet he took on the form of humanity, which means he lives within time and space and matter. Because that's all created, right? So he became part of the creation. But yeah, he lives outside of the creation because exists, I should say, outside of the creation because he has both these natures. He's fully and completely able to exercise both his divinity and his humanity. Now, how many people in here might say you understand that right there? It should boggle our mind because we're trying to describe God. But we, we see that, we understand that by faith. We believe it by faith because God's word says it's true. But actually, it's, it's so important. I, I park in this point because it's so important for us that we, have a, that we understand that we need to have a Savior who is both God and at the same time 100% human. We need a Savior who is human. Who, who has lived a perfect life, a life that we could never live. Children, you need a savior who had a parent, had a parent and had to go through that suffering <laughs> in the home of obedience, right? But perfectly obeyed. Like we need, we need a savior who, who lived this life in perfect obedience to God the Father. We need a savior who can suffer for our sins, suffer the punishment for sins, and only one with a human nature could do that. However, we also need an eternal Savior who can suffer, who can bear an eternal penalty for sins. We need an eternal Savior who can conquer eternal death, and only the Lord can do that. Only he is the eternal one, the I am. So that's who Jesus is. Jesus is, is Jesus of Nazareth, but also the Lord. How do we know he's the Lord? Well, he was a man attested to you by God with mighty works, wonders, and signs. This speaks of the supernatural works by the Father through the Son. And we can read about those in the Gospels. We can go through some of those in the Gospels. And, but what's interesting is these, these that were listening to Peter, they actually saw some of these miracles. Right? He says that. Look in verse 22. He says, at the very end, he says, that he did these in your midst, as you yourselves know. It was, it was not debated that Jesus was able to perform these supernatural miracles and supernatural signs. So why did Jesus do that? Why did Jesus, when he was on this earth during his ministry, why did he perform these mighty works and signs? Well, he did it to demonstrate that he is the Lord. The supernatural works of Jesus demonstrated that he had the authority over all creation, all nature, all creatures, invisible, invisible, everything. Jesus is the Lord. And that's why he did those. Our world, we operate in a world that is under the authority of the laws of nature, right? Yesterday we were doing some things and one of our kids went through a door. There was a potted plant on the other side. And guess what happened to that potted plant? It tipped over, broke everywhere. And you know whose fault that was? The laws of nature, right? Try that one next time, kids. <laughs> but we, we, we live under those laws. Like those laws govern, are governed with the laws of gravity and energy and matter and so on. And we submit to those every day. What's, what's remarkable is, is Jesus actually himself, though he was the one who created those laws, he submitted to those laws. But he also had the power to overrule those laws with supernatural power, which is amazing to think about. And so Jesus had supernatural power, and he 
he did that, he exercised that to show that he had authority over the natural, over nature. And again, what is, what is natural? What is nature? Well, when the wind blows, and that happens a lot here in CME, doesn't it? But the, when the wind blows, that's natural. That's nature. When you're out on the ocean or out in a sea, Jesus was around the Sea of Galilee. The wind would blow and the waves would come up. When you're on a boat, it's nature. It's natural to be able to be on a boat and be able to float across if that boat is buoyant enough. And, and why, are, why was Jesus able to get in a boat and go out in the sea and float out there? Because of the laws of buoyancy. I don't know if that's even a thing, but I know something like that, right? In other words, the idea is that something that is, is less dense is able to float. Something that is more dense is able to sink. And Jesus operated in that. In other words, when he was in that boat, he actually sat in the boat. He operated under the laws of nature. But there were times when something would happen and he would exercise supernatural power. Like in Mark chapter 4. It was the evening. In other words, the sun had set or you could say the earth rotated. And he went out with his disciples. There were a couple boats out there. The winds blew. The waves came up. The water was starting to go in the boat. And they were going to sink. I mean, it was going to happen unless something supernatural happened. And so what did Jesus do? He gets up, stands up. The Bible says he awoke. He was sleeping. He rebuked the wind, and he said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Jesus had the power over nature. How was that possible? Because he created those laws. I mean, he, he is the Lord. And so that's why they say to him, they say, they ask the question, who then is this? That even the winds and the seas obey him. And what's the answer to that? Who is that? That's the Lord. He's the Lord. In fact, there's another time when Jesus was out on that same sea. I love this picture right here. It's, I don't know who painted this or made this, but I think it's a great picture of the power of Jesus Christ. He was on that sea and he walked on the water. And he actually called Peter out to walk on the water as well. And when they got Back in the boat, after the wind had ceased, Jesus had calmed the wind and and the waves, and they got back in the boat. They were so amazed by the supernatural power of Jesus that what did they say? They said, truly, you are the Son of God. You are God. There's something about you that is supernatural. Luke chapter 7, Jesus came upon a funeral for a young man in the town of Nain. Remember, this funeral procession was coming out. Jesus touched this young man, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. And what did they, how did they respond? God has visited his people. I mean, think about that. Here's a, here's a guy whose body is decaying, and Jesus was able to reverse that decomposition. De- de- decomposition? The process of decomposition. Nope. Decomposition. decomposition. There you go. I knew there was a word I was looking for. The process of decomposition. Jesus was able to overrule that with a simple command. It's amazing to think about. He supernaturally, in an instant, infused water with grape juice and fermented the juice in an instant. What's that called? He turned the water into wine. He supernaturally healed cells and reconstructed the immune systems of those with skin diseases. What's that called? He, kill, he healed the lepers. In an instant, he regenerated corneas, optic nerves, brain connections so the blind could see. He gave sight to the blind. 
He cast out demons and demonstrated he has authority over the visible and, and invisible realms. And all these mighty works he did to demonstrate that he is the Lord. Second proof, Jesus proved to be the Lord over death with his sacrificial death. Verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Peter preached that Jesus conquered death with his own death. It was the plan of the father to send his son so that he could conquer death and provide a way to remove the pain or the agony of death. And when did this plan start? When did it go into effect? Well, look at verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. There actually are three verbs in verse 23. One of them is one that deals with the action of God. Two of them deal with the actions of those listening to the sermon. The the one dealing with the action of God is found in verse 23 where he says definite. So he says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan. That word sometimes is translated determined. Sometimes it's translated as prearranged. But this verb is basically telling us this. And that is that God made a decision in the past that resulted in history taking place according to his plans. Whatever God plans, whatever he intends, it will come to pass. In fact, he says it was a plan that was according to his what? What does he say? His foreknowledge. Foreknowledge doesn't just mean he knew something. It means this was his intention. Like he had foresight and intended for something to happen. And when God intends something to happen, it happens, right? Last year in November, or I'm sorry, last year in February, I was planning Easter. I can remember getting together with some of the guys and talking about Easter. And I was getting pretty excited about it and had all these plans for Easter. And, and what happened? I mean, who could have foreseen what happened last year, that shutdown, right? I mean, 15 days is slow to spread. And we're still in that 15 days, aren't we? But, you know, when you think about that, it's like, it's crazy to think about. Like, I've had these plans. I hope they were going to work out. I tried my best, right? But the Lord is the one in the end of the day that is in charge. Next week, we're planning for Super Bowl Sunday, or we call it Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, right? I mean, that, that is Super Bowl Sunday for the church, by the way, if you don't know that. You know, some of you that wouldn't ever miss a Super Bowl or World Series, let me recommend, don't miss church either, okay? This is the biggest Sunday of the year for the church because this is the Sunday that we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, so we're planning, we're praying, hope you're inviting. We have cards out in the back, hope you're inviting some people um, I told you last week we have some of our kids who are passing mountain stores, and so we have some people that said they're coming. I know some people in here said they've gone around their neighborhood and passed out cards. We're inviting, we're praying. But at the end of the day, who knows what's going to happen next week, right? We trust the Lord. He's the one that's in charge. Because God is able to make plans, and those plans will take place according to whatever he decides, and therefore we submit to him as the Lord in that area. The Father's perfect plan before creation, though, was to send Jesus Christ, and nothing was going to stop that plan. In fact, look at verse 23. You can see the two other verbs there are attributed to the listeners. He says in verse 23, this Jesus 
delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And here are the next two verbs. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So it was the plan of God to send Jesus to die for our sins. But the ones who killed Jesus were those standing there. That might not have been actually the religious leaders right there, but the idea was Israel should have embraced Jesus as their Messiah. They should have worshipped him as the Lord, but instead they rejected him, and they didn't just reject him, they killed him. And they didn't just kill him, they actually plotted to have him crucified. Crucifixion was one of the cruelest ways to physically die. It was torture. But for the Jewish people, crucifixion was more than that, it was symbolic. It was symbolic. That person dying was cursed by God. If a person was hung on a tree or nailed to a tree, according to the book of Deuteronomy, that person was cursed. In other words, that person was represented, that, that person was cursed by God, damned by God to hell. That's pretty serious, isn't it? So is the view of these Jewish people that Jesus was on this cross, and therefore God was, had his curse upon Jesus. I mean, what better way to say this Messiah is not really from God than to put him on a wooden tree and to say he's cursed by God. But little did they realize that their plot to put him on a tree and have him be cursed by God was actually God's plan. And Jesus voluntarily put himself on that cross to be cursed by his father. And we know this because Galatians 3.13 says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written in Deuteronomy, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So the father's plan was to send Jesus to the cross to be cursed for our sin on the cross. And on that cross, God the father, he poured out damnation upon Jesus he poured out, you could say, hell upon Jesus. And why do I say hell? Because hell is the physical and spiritual torment of being separated from God because of sin. Hell is the physical and spiritual torment of being separated from God because of sin. And that happened to Jesus on the cross. He was separated from his father in relationship to his father and because of our sin. Our sin was poured out. The wrath of God was poured out upon Jesus. And listen, if anybody knows hell, it's Jesus. Right? He created it for the demons and for the devil. He, he created it to torture them for their rejection and their pride for their sin. When Jesus was in that garden and he was praying the night before he was going to go die and he was going to invite the wrath of God to come upon him for our sin. Remember, he was in that garden and he was praying. What did he pray in that garden? Let this cup pass from me. And Jesus knew what was going to happen. And that cup represented the wrath of God, the wrath of God for sin poured out upon him. Like it was the idea, the picture that he's going to drink the wrath of God on that cross for all of our sin. And that immensely stressed Jesus out to the point where he cried out, Father, is there another way? And then he said, what? Well, not my will, but your will, Father, be done. Many in our world have a very flippant view of hell, don't they? How many times have you heard at work or on TV people use the word hell and they don't even think about what they're saying? They use it in a casual, dismissive way. And I'm not going to 
I don't want to put it in your mind necessarily, but just to make it clear, like they say, what the, and they say that, right? Or they use the word damn. Those are very serious words because hell is actually a real place. God actually does damn people to hell. We should never, as Christians, have those words come out of our mouth. And it should really cause us to cringe when we hear other people do the same. Jesus took that hell upon himself. He invited damnation for sin upon himself on that cross. Who was responsible for the death of Jesus? This is a debate people have through the centuries. Who is responsible? Look at the end of verse 23. He says, you crucified him and killed him. It says, by the hands of lawless men. Who was responsible for Jesus' death? Well, God the Father planned it, and the religious leaders, they plotted it. But he says these lawless men here were the ones that actually with their hands carried out that that killing crucifixion of Jesus. Who are these lawless men? Well, technically speaking, these are the Romans. These are the Gentiles. I like how he does it a little bit more general, though, in calling it lawless people, because I really think for us, we are Gentiles. We're not Romans, but we are Gentiles. But we also are lawless people. We could actually put ourselves, I think we could put ourselves in there. The truth is, we are the ones who caused the death of Jesus Christ. It's our sin, as the scripture, or as the song says, our sin that put him there. The Bible teaches we deserve to die for our sins because of our lawless deeds, but Jesus died in our place. And the idea is this, that the Lord is the lawmaker. He created this world. He created natural law. He created moral law. And he, he calls all people to submit to him as Lord. But we are born into this world with this heart's desire to live independent of God, don't we? We all have these lawless hearts. What does that lawless heart look like? Well, you can turn here if you want to or just look on the screen up here. Romans chapter 1, verse 29. Paul describes the, the heart of a lawless person. Verse 29, he says, these lawless people, here's what lawless people are like. They're filled with all manner of unrighteousness. That is that they have a heart that wants to do what's wrong. This is a heart that's against God. The unrighteous heart doesn't live in submission to God. They actually, they actually do what they think is right. They don't care what God thinks is right. The unrighteous person, they, they are in some sense, they're, they're callous to the righteousness of God. They can frankly watch whatever they want on TV and it doesn't hurt their conscience because they're unrighteous. They can bark at a person, lie about this, steal in this area, cheat on this, and it doesn't bother them because their heart is unrighteous. He says they're filled with evil. Evil is a heart that wants to fulfill, fulfill wicked desires. It's that heart that looks at people and automatically thinks the worst. It's evil desire in your heart. It's the heart that, that holds grudges. It's the heart that looks upon someone else and lusts after them for your own enjoyment. It's an evil heart. And he says it's a heart of covetousness. That's a, that's a heart that is not content with what God has given to you. This is a person who loves the gifts from God. Oh God, give me this, give me that. But they don't really care about worshiping God and they don't live in a thankful way in regard to God. How many people have thought or said something like this? If God would just give me like a million dollars, then I'd be happy. You ever thought that? Like if God, or maybe, let's, let's make it to 10 million. What's a million anymore, you know? We're throwing out trillion dollar bills, you know, so let's go, to, let's go 10 million. 
God gave me $10 million, then I'd be happy. You ever thought that? I'd be happy if God were to do that. And in fact, I would tithe it, maybe even give half of it to the Lord, you know, and just the other half I would keep and do whatever I want with. And the truth is, that's actually not true, is it? How many people have thought or said that, and then how many of those same people, they got their stimulus checks in the mail, and the first thought they had was, how can I spend that on me? How can I make sure that my, my pile of wood, hay, and stubble is a little bigger, right? And if Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. So many people got stimulus checks across America. Many Christians did. And the question is, how do we view that? How, what we do with that kind of stuff shows what we truly value. And the covetous heart, it loves material things. It loves earthly things, and therefore its focus is all upon that. I wonder, I wonder this. I wonder how many Christians across America got those stimulus checks in the mail and thought to themselves, how can I advance the kingdom of God with this? I wonder how many got them and thought, you know what? How, how can I give this to the Lord? Uh, pastors aren't supposed to preach on things like that, are they? Well, pastors are included in that area too, so we preach to ourselves. Malice. That is a heart that will hurt someone to get something for yourself. It's the heart that's unforgiving. It's the heart that gives someone the silent treatment just so you can hurt them a little bit more. Or maybe it's the person that you, it's the person who rages against someone else, who roasts someone because you want to get something from them or just because you feel like it. They're full of envy and murder and strife and deceit, maliciousness, the gossips and slanders and haters of God, insolent, haughty. This is, is the idea of pride. That you have an exalted opinion of your own opinion and then boastful, you have to tell everyone about it. Inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Well, children, don't miss this one. You're in here too, right? It's the lawless heart that thinks I'm smarter than my parents. I know better than my parents. My parents are old fogies. They probably are old fogies, but still you're supposed to obey them. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And every description there was given by Paul the Apostle to describe what a, a, a lawless heart looks like. And did you see your heart anywhere up there described? You should have, right? Because we all have this type of heart. All of us are born with this lawless heart. We all want to rule our own lives. We all want to exalt ourselves above God. We all want the gifts of God, but we don't want the giver. We're unthankful. We don't trust the Lord. We're selfish. We're self-rulers. And so what is Paul's conclusion, therefore? He says, though they know God's righteous decree, like you know God's righteousness, yet those who practice such things deserve to die. Is that true? Right? We like to say we deserve a lot of things. How many of you said that recently? Like, I deserve to die. Our lawless, lawlessness causes pain. It causes pain to others. It causes pain to ourselves. But the worst is the eternal pain of death. And this is why Jesus died. He died to rescue us from the pain of sin and death. Look down in verse 24. He says, God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death. In verse 24, Peter used a word, the word pangs, it's a word that describes the pain of childbirth. But he used it in the context here to describe the pain of death. So Peter said, God raised up Jesus to loosen the 
pangs of death, or the idea of pangs is agony or the pain. Death is a painful event. It can be painful. The actual dying can be painful. Sometimes the pain of losing someone is what is painful. But the most painful part of death is not physically dying, not just the loss of someone. It's actually permanent separation from fellowship with God for eternity. Most painful pain of death is permanent separation from God and his goodness. And Jesus, here's the good news. Jesus died and rose again to loose the agony of death. In verse 24, he says, God raised them up and loosening the pangs of death. The idea there is untying or someone that's shackled down. I think back to that boy who was, who was enslaved in some sense to that neighbor girl because he killed the duck. This is how Satan operates, right? He uses our sin and he actually does have some sort of dominion over, over those who don't know Christ. They're enslaved to him. They are, they are part of the darkness of Satan until Christ delivers them by the power of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus, he actually holds now the power of, he, the power of life over death. He is the Lord. And his death broke the chains of death. And broke the power of the devil. And his resurrection enables us to be set free. Colossians chapter 2 verses 13 says this. And you, speaking of those who have turned and trusted Jesus Christ as their savior. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him. And here's a beautiful truth. Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers that Satan and his demons and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. And on that cross, Jesus defeated depravity, death and demons. The cross makes forgiveness and salvation possible for you. Jesus made it possible for you, the lawless sinner, to become a child, forgiven, under the covenant of grace and love. And he did that because he is able to, because he is the Lord. There's a story of Martin Luther uh, told about how he was vexed by his sin. Sometimes he'd have dreams, and sometimes he would just be under immense guilt because of his sin. So one time he told this story about how he had this dream, or I don't know if it was actually a dream or just something he thought about, but Satan came to him, and he had this long scroll, and he rolled up the scroll, and he started pointing, and he's saying, listen, Luther, you have, you have sin. Look at this right here. And because of this, you deserve to die. You deserve to go to hell. Luther, and Luther looked at it, and he said, yeah, you're right. And he threw that down, and he picked up another school, and it doesn't stop there. It keeps on going. And he started pointing to more sins, like, and, and he's, he just had this immense guilt upon him. And then Satan said, see right there? This condemns you. And Luther said, wait a second. You, you forgot something. You forgot something to, to put on that. Right on there, the blood of Jesus, God's son, cleanses me from all sin. 
I'm forgiven. And see, that's the hope right there we have as Christians. Jesus Christ, he is the Lord. And for those who believe in him, for those who have have repented and turned from your way of living and your sin, and you say, I'm following Jesus, and he is my Lord, he is my Savior, Jesus promises whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And that starts in this life and continues on forever. And that's a guarantee. But whoever does not obey the gospel, in other words, you say, I'm going to live my own life, my way. I'm going to follow my own sin, my own desires. The promise is that the wrath of God will still remain upon you. And I wonder if there is a person that is listening to me, and maybe over the past couple weeks, maybe just even this morning, in your heart, you feel the immense guilt of God for your sin. And you realize you're living in disobedience to the Lord. You're not trusting in Jesus. You're not turning to Jesus. And you need to come to Jesus today. And I'm going to tell you this. Jesus Christ is the Lord and he can forgive you. He can save you. And for us believers, when we think about our guilt, we think about our sin and the guilt that we deserve, we look to the cross. We look to Jesus Christ. and We trust he's the Lord. He's the Savior. And he died for my sin. All my sins are forgiven under the blood of Jesus Christ. We praise God for that. Would you bow your heart with me before the Lord in prayer?